and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. My name is Mo Barrett, a leadership speaker and retired Air Force Colonel. As our listeners here in America know, this month we mark Memorial Day in the United States. It's a day when all Americans pay tribute to those brave men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice in service to our nation. Our guest this month is a man who uniquely understands just what it means to sacrifice all for country. That's because as a Huey helicopter pilot during the Vietnam War, Major General Patrick Brady repeatedly put his own life on the line, risking it all in enemy territory and under a hail of fire to rescue his wounded comrades. You may remember that General Brady helped us kick off this podcast over two years ago, appearing as the first guest and National Medal of Honor recipient to join us and to talk about the significance of the National Medal of Honor Museum and his life of service to our country. Today, we want to hear more about that service, but we also want to talk with the general about something many folks might not know about him. And that's why he makes Arlington Cemetery a regular stop on his itinerary just about every time he travels to our nation's capital, and why there's one section that's particularly special to him. On Memorial Day, we think it's an especially timely and inspiring story, the story of a hero paying tribute to heroes. So with that, it is my privilege to welcome General Brady back to the Mission Inspire podcast. General Brady, welcome back to the show. You are our very first repeat guest, and we're really glad to have you back on the podcast. All right. Did <laughs> I, didn't get, I didn't get it right the first time? No, you got it so right that we needed you back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the last time you were on the show, you talked mostly about the plans for the museum in Arlington, Texas, and the monument in Washington, D.C., which we'll talk a little bit about later. But what we want to do now is give our listeners the chance to learn more about you and to hear your Medal of Honor story. So we're hoping that you can take us back to that day in Vietnam in 1968. Hmm. I believe you were actually off duty when you learned about the mission that ultimately led to your earning the medal. I was I was off duty. Uh, and in fact, it was a mission that uh, required a technique we had developed earlier which allowed us to fly in the clouds in zero-zero weather uh, in the terrain, low valley fog, and the buildup that took place on the mountaintops in the afternoon. And I don't know if I told the story on the other one about the kid that was bit by a snake on top of the mountain. Well, and, uh, I don't remember that one. Tell me about that now. <laughs> okay. Well, when I went back to Vietnam, my second tour, <clears throat> unfortunately, we or fortunately, we had brand new right out of flight school pilots. This tour, we were in the mountains. And the mountains and night were killing more of our pilots than the enemy. Mm. And so these young pilots with no combat experience, no flying experience to speak of, they had about 200 hours apiece. I was one of two pilots in the unit that had previous experience in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So I'm scared to death that they're going to kill themselves going after patients at night and in weather. And uh, as always, praying to the good Lord to show me a way. Mm -hmm. so we get a call one afternoon for a troop that's on a mountaintop in the clouds. Oh. They built up in the afternoon. And in the morning, you had the low valley fall. Zero, zero weather, no letdown facilities, no nav aids, no nothing. So we could, we could work with this in the Delta because it was flat, very difficult in the mountains, in the jungle. 
So we started out after the kid and uh, I knew that if I got disoriented, I could fall into the valley and I would break out and I'd be visual. If you're in that stuff and you don't have two reference points, you don't know if you're right side up, or upside down. Right. You have to, you have to depend entirely on your body tells you nothing. You have to entire de, depend entirely upon your instruments, mm -hmm. which are no good in a circumstance like this. Mm. So up into the clouds, disoriented, fall off, fell off. They're screaming at me, come and get him, come and get him. Back around again, my crew's getting nervous. And I said, okay, guys, one more time. We got to give it one more shot. We go up and we got blown sideways. Yep. And that wind was the breath of God. I looked out my window to find a hole to see if I could find a hole in the jungle to, to crash. And uh, guess what? I could see the tip of my rotor blade and I could see the top of the trees. In other words, I could see 20 feet in that stuff. Wow. I had two reference points. I knew I was right side up. I turned that sucker around and hovered up the hill into the place, got the guy, got him to the hospital, and I think he lived. Wow. So that was the technique. Two reference points. You work your way into it very slowly, do a good map recon beforehand, find a river, road, stream, something that you can follow into the area so you have those two reference points. Mm -hmm. And that essentially was the technique that they knew I could do. And so they woke me up because they had patients in the valley, in the fog, in the low valley fog at this time, and they couldn't get to them. So they woke me up to go get them. And I did. I went and got them. And uh, four trips into the uh, one trip into an outpost. Got really lucky there because the VC had registered the outpost. We missed the outpost in the fog set down just outside of it. They were mortaring the outpost, got the patients on. And on the way to the hospital, I heard about another uh, patient. Actually, they told me 70 patients or so were trapped in the fog, further out into the valley, in the mountains. And I said, what, what, what they've been there all night? What the hell's going on? <laughs> and so we went, took the patients to the hospital, turned around, went back. And they wouldn't let me go in initially because they didn't want to lift the artillery. Hmm. And the chances of an artillery round hitting me in the air is like, you know, trying to throw a rocket at, at a bird or something. Yeah. So finally, we convinced my co-pilot actually convinced the brigade commander that we had just flown a mission just like that. Two aircraft have been shot down, two or more aircraft have been shot down, and they just couldn't get in there. But we had a technique that we could use and we could get in there. So we did. They tried initially to follow us in for other aircraft because there was a lot of patients down there. And uh, and they they and I'm kind of glad they turned around because, you know, if you got a bunch of aircraft in that crap, you're liable to run into each other. You can't see but about yeah. 20 feet. Anyhow, we made four trips in there. We got them all out. And then from then on, we were called to some other sites where we got the aircraft shot up and a minefield where we got the aircraft blown up and wounded a couple of crew members. But not unlike a lot of missions, the ones that attracted the attention were the ones in the fog because the, the unit, the military unit was on a mountaintop looking down into the fog where the patients were. And when they saw that our aircraft come up through that fog, 
they knew that their buddies were going to be saved. So oh. I'm told that they, they gave us a standing ovation when, oh, wow. <laughs> when we landed with the first patients. And then the other, the other ones was with my crew chief running through a minefield to pull the patients on board. We used three aircraft that day. They say we got 50 some out. In the course of that day, we had to get at least 100 because there were 70 in the one location. And in between missions, we, we got a lot of other patients. So, wow. Um, but the thing that made it unique was the weather. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's, that is really disorienting when you can't trust anything. But, um, but so, you're but, Yeah, but you had mentioned that that was a typical day for you. So how did you learn you were going to get the Medal of Honor for what you describe as a typical day? Where, where were you? I was... Uh, I was at Fort Sam, and uh, I I knew that some units in the field units had put us in for something, mm-hmm. and I but I didn't know what. There were rumors, Distinguished Service Cross, and in fact, while I was at Fort Sam, they had a special parade, special ceremony, giving me my second Distinguished Service Cross. Well, what that turned out to be was an interim award for the Medal of Honor. So later on, I got a call from the White House or from DOD, I guess it was. It was a, a Major Scott. I remember his name. And he said, I'm in General Westmoreland's office. Congratulations. You're going to get the Medal of Honor. I says, right. Who in the <laughs> hell is this? And are you jerking my chain? And so uh, it turned out to be true. And it was a great thing because they allowed me to fly a lot of my people to the ceremony in the White House, nice. including my family. In those days, they had the ceremony out on the lawn, and you could have five, 6,000 people there. Now they have them inside, and, and the number of people who can attend is, is limited. So what, what was that day like then? I mean, that's got to be so different than anything you've experienced. What was that day like at the White House outside? Well, the, the couple interesting things. Well, they asked me, what does it feel like? Well, you stand up there on the stage out in the middle of the South Lawn or wherever it is, and, and you look out. Right down below you, a bunch of guys did everything you did and then some. Mm-hmm. And so you're really embarrassed because they're looking and they're there for you. But you know that uh, you, the great thing about the medal is somebody saw it, appreciated it, mm-hmm. took the time to write it up. And it took like two years for it to go through the system. Mm-hmm. But the really neat thing was uh, while we were in the, in the Oval Office with uh, President Nixon, he said, the Medal of Honor Society is meeting in in uh, Houston, Texas, at the Shamrock Hotel. We says, "What's what is that?" He says, "Well, after this afternoon, after I give you the medal, you will be a member of the Congressional Medal of Honor Society." We said, "Wow!" And they're having their annual meeting right now. Perfect. And he says, "How would you like to go?" We said, "Gee whiz, sure we'd like to go. How are we going to get there?" He says, "Will you take Air Force One?" Wow. So he put us on his airplane, airplane, which then became Air Force something else than one. Right. And we flew down there and you walk into, in those days, um, one of my buddies said there was like 400 recipients living. I don't know how many were at that ball, but there's Bob Hope oh. and there's uh, the governor and there's Eddie Rickenbacker and there's Jimmy Doolittle, wow. Joe Foss. We had Medal of Honor recipients from the Indian Wars, one of them from the Boxer Rebellion, and here we are. We walk in there, and good Lord, what in the heck are we doing in a company like this? 
So it was, uh, it was, and, and Dinah Shore was the entertainment, and you probably never heard of her, but she was. I have heard of her. <laughs> it was a big shot in those days, yeah. and so it was, and and the, the society conventions uh, usually has a, a lot of great celebrities at them, so this was great for us. Yeah, well, you had me at Bob Hope, so that's <laughs> that's phenomenal. Yeah. So this Congressional Medal of Honor Society, and then we we talk now. So we'll transition to the National Medal of Honor Museum and the National Medal of Honor Monument. So when you were last on, when we first started this podcast, you were talking about both projects. The museum had not broken ground in Texas, and there was not yet any legislation written to even authorize the the monument in Washington, D.C. So what does it feel like to have witnessed so much progress on both of these worthwhile initiatives? Well, it was, we've been trying to do this for 50 years. We had initially a small headquarters on the Intrepid in New York City, small Mm -hmm. little museum there, headquarters. One person worked three days a week to manage 400 of us. We had problems there because of the weather was tearing up our stuff and everything. So we moved to an aircraft carrier and South Carolina, uh, Yorktown. Mm -hmm. And then we made plans for a land-based museum. You can't have much of a museum on an aircraft carrier, although we do have a museum there and they're, they're refurbishing it right now. But, uh, land-based museum, I still remember the plans 40 years ago or more in the shape of the metal as you look down on it from above. And so that was our goal is to, in fact, find a place for our stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I was a vice president and the president asked me to go out and see where we could put our stuff. I went to the Smithsonian. I went to the war college, what they had there. And every place they told me the same thing. We'll take it, but you have no, no say over how we display it or if we display it. Oh, so wow. that's, that's unacceptable. So then we went to the idea of a land-based museum and been working on that all these years, initially in South Carolina, and then we had a nationwide competition. Texas won. Nice. Arlington won. And I'll tell you why they won. They won because in the algorithm, with the traffic and the cost of labor and all the things that cranked into it, the one thing that stood out about Texas was patriotism and a values in that state. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is what put it over the board, uh, over the through the board, we, we, we had a vote. It was touch and go between Texas and Denver. Uh, Texas won, and I think they were the right place, absolutely the right place for it. Now, nothing would have happened without the Jones family mm-hmm. and, and uh, the Goff family and the people who were associated with the Joneses in terms of getting this thing done. Like I said, We'd been, this thing had been going on for 50 years, we wanted. And we had a, a foundation for 10 or 15 years that couldn't raise money and couldn't get it done and couldn't get it approved and everything. And thanks to the mayor of Arlington and uh, the, the great people there that gave us a wonderful, I'm sitting here looking out the window at Cowboy Stadium from my hotel room and wow. the place, the top is going on the the museum, and uh, it's just, it's going to be, uh, it, 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 the problem is it just keeps getting delayed because of labor costs and all that crap. And so, uh, God willing, uh, before I die, I will 
Charlotte said she's going to walk me in the front door when they open it. And I says, well, if it keeps going like this, you're going to have to push me in a wheelchair through the front door. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, it's good to know that there's like that, that the right people are on it and moving it forward and moving it from what was an idea or a concept and now into something that's you that's tangible that you can see there and put a hard hat on and go walk the grounds. And I'm, I'm loving that you can see it right now, like the, the grounds right where it's at. Yeah. So we, uh, we've got Memorial Day coming up this month and we would be remiss to not talk about the hallowed grounds at Arlington National Cemetery. Now it's a place you visit very often and what draws you back so often whenever you come back to DC? Well, <clears throat> I, you know, to, to, to kind of simplify thing, I had a preacher say to me one time that if I see if I get this right, <clears throat> he said, if love is to survive, it must be expressed. Now, I think we know clearly that this country cannot survive without patriots. Mm -hmm. People who will not, who don't just say they love their country, people who will support and defend their country, no future for a democracy without patriots. So if the country has survived, uh, we must express our gratitude to our patriots. And this begins on Memorial Day. <clears throat> and, and, we, and on Memorial Day, we kind of enter into the uh, season of patriotism. You know, that's when we put the flowers in the graves of those who sacrificed their youth, that liberty might grow old. And then we move on after that. You've got Independence Day, July 4th. Mm -hmm. You've got Flag Day, June the 14th. You've got uh, v, VD Day when we landed on June in June mm -hmm. and freed Europe from the scourge of, of Nazism. And something like 36 days there, kind of a period of patriotism where we remember and are grateful to those great blood donors to our freedom hmm. starts with Memorial Day. If you don't remember, I mean, if if it's to survive, it must be expressed. Patriotism must be expressed. That's a great way of putting it. But I never thought about that. That. So the, so when you go and express your gratitude um, for those who have, like you said, donated blood to the cause of liberty and to, to the uh, the longevity of democracy. There is a section seven alpha that is significant to you. Can you tell us why is it significant to you? And what is, what's so important about section seven alpha to you personally? <clears throat> well, many years ago, I lost a, I lost my son and my son was then buried in uh, near Baltimore. And so then I was assigned to the Pentagon and I met the guy who ran Arlington Cemetery. And he said, would you like to move your son to Arlington? He's close to you. You live here. So I did. I moved him there. And he said, this is the last section of Arlington where you can have your own gravestone, which I thought was kind of neat. And my wife is now there buried by, with my son in Section 7A. I will soon be buried in Section 7A. And so over the years, as my fellow recipients have died or lost their wives, I told them about Section 7A, where they could have their own tombstone. They could be buried. It's right at the foot of the tomb of the unknown soldier. Right. 
Uh, in fact, I my grave is in the same row that Joe Lewis's grave is. Okay. And if you go in there, you'll find many, many of the great Medal of Honor recipients down through our histories. People like uh, Jimmy Doolittle, Joe Foss, Pappy Boynton, uh, Bruce Crandall will be buried there. Mike Novosel is buried there, very close to me. And uh, uh, Fort Rucker has been renamed Fort Novosel. And so Section 7A, and in fact, yesterday, my grandson visited Section 7A and sent me a picture of, of my wife's headstone and my son's headstone there. So that was a great, a great gift from my grandson. Wow. That's, that's wonderful. I, I go to, um, I see Joe Lewis quite often because I always go up to the uh, Tomb of the Unknown, but I, I, I was not aware until now about 7 Alpha. So I will make, um, make it a point to look a little bit more closely at all the tombstones that are there. So that's really powerful. And I'm sorry for your loss with your son and your wife, but I'm take glad a, that you have a, a place to, to go see them and to go visit and pay your respects. And again, take, express your Take a walk through 7A sometime and you're going to find it's some it's of the great generals from uh, World War II are buried there. Some of the great politicians, astronauts, and a whole bunch, many, many uh, Medal of Honor recipients, some of them who are the Commandant of the Marine Corps and some great war heroes from World War II. Yeah, what what a what a great rich history that's just sitting there um, that, that we can go visit and just kind of relive that. And again, like you said, express gratitude, especially as we go into this season of patriotism starting with Memorial Day. Yeah. So the other thing is the National Medal of Honor Museum is working to ensure that all Americans understand and remember the stories of the men and women women who have served our country. And your story is definitely one that is inspired and I'm sure will continue to inspire our listeners. But what we wanna know, and this is something we ask all of the Medal of Honor recipients who join us on this show is, is there another recipient whose story ex inspires you? Ah, yeah. let me think about that one. I tell you, I can tell you there is, and there are other soldiers, other military people who certainly have inspired me. But before I got the Medal of Honor, I never knew another Medal of Honor recipient. Mm. That, that day uh, and after that convention, that was the first Medal of Honor recipients that I, that I had ever met. But down through the years, you know, as an aviator and uh, in, soldiers have inspired me. Charles Kelly, who I write about in my book, mm -hmm. Men Flying, I think he was one of the greatest heroes I ever know, ever knew because he had a combination of moral courage and physical courage that is unique in a human being. He took on the entire establishment to establish helicopter ambulance rescues in Vietnam, dust off called dust off, which saved close to a million lives. It cost him his life wow. to do that. His dying words were when they tried to get him out of a hot area where he was under fire, he said he would not leave until I have your wounded. Those were his last words. He took a bullet right through the heart, died on the spot. Wow. But that was the end of them trying to take our helicopters away and resulted in the men, women, children, enemy as well as friendly. He set the stage, probably the greatest hero I've ever known. And in that same war in Vietnam, I met another marvelous hero, also not a Medal of Honor recipient. Her name was Doc Smith. 
She was a female physician. She went to Vietnam to care for lepers. Hmm. She ended up founding a hospital there that was dedicated to the mountain yards. They tried to kill her several times. Uh, she managed to live through it. Uh, the, the Vietnamese would not care for mountain yards who they considered to be savages. Hmm. They were our allies. They were great warriors, great people. But the Vietnamese wouldn't care for them in their hospitals. I had to take mountain yard patients. Thank God I found her to her hospital where she cared for them. Wow. And the other great lesson from her was, and we talked to the young people about it through our museum, is that she adopted two children. One of them she found on the breast of its dead mother. The VC had killed everyone in the village. The baby was the only one alive. She rescued that baby, and she found that baby's brother, two mountain yard kids. Their fathers uh, hunted with a crossbow, and they lived in a hooch with dirt floors. The mothers were naked to the waist and lived uh, essentially on rat meat and whatever they could kill. Mm -hmm. She took those two children, mountain yard children, Aborigine children. She adopted them, brought them to America, loved them. One of them is a Navy dentist, and the other one is an accomplished musician in somewhere around Seattle. Wow. See what, see what can happen. That is fantastic. I, it's, it's amazing. All these people are walking around us, and when we just have somebody to believe in you and to inspire you and you give it that little push and that opportunity, that, that is amazing. And that's what we hope the museum will do. Yep. Yep. It will inspire these young people. They'll walk in the front door. They're going to see so-called heroes. They're not going to be wearing capes or playing a banjo or something. They're going to be wearing dog tags. And the young man will walk out realizing that the thing that got them the medal, courage, sacrifice, patriotism, is something that they can have in their life, which the key to success, to happiness, and the future of our country. And they don't have to go to combat to do it. Mm -hmm. They will see what these men did, not to get the medal, but what they did with the medal. Oh, perfect. Park service, aviation, you can go on and on about what recipients have done uh, with that medal as opposed to what they did to get that medal. And that's what we want to inspire in young people. That's perfect. Well, you know what? I can't think of a better ending to, to end this uh, episode of this podcast. That is fabulous. And um, I cannot wait to be there to watch you and Charlotte Jones walk through the doors when we finally open and um, thank you for being such a great spokesperson and and understanding what the medal represents and what what your role that you have taken on as a recipient, what that represents and how you can help us share that legacy. So thank you so much for your time today and really, really grateful to have had this time with you. And um, as we get into Memorial Day and like you called it, the season of patriotism, wishing everybody a, a breath of God to blow them on course and uh, to one of gratitude and awareness and appreciation. Well, thank you much. For everyone who wants to learn a little more about the National Medal of Honor Museum and how you can help its mission to inspire America, head on over to mohmuseum.org. That's mohmuseum.org. That's it for us today. Please join us next time on the Mission Inspire Podcast.